We even had a process where you have to explain why, what you intend to do. So I wrote a document on this, what were my goals. And then we discovered with horror that all candidates for the president and vice president were women. And then I was told, well, there's no way you're going to be elected as president because they, they, you cannot be an entire female presidency. Of course, there were many uh, male judges that wanted to be president, but no one has said vice president. So if I was elected, I was going to end up in a totally female presidency. And even for women and some of the staff members that were my friends, they said, that doesn't work. You will not be elected like that. These words described Silvia Fernandez's experience during a watershed moment for representation and feminism at the ICC. Throughout her careers, plural, the Argentine lawyer, diplomat and judge, and of course, former president of the ICC, has gone through many shocks and tribulations associated with being a woman on the international bench. But these did not deter her and in fact push her to fight for more representation in international courts. On this episode of Women in International Justice, Silvia Fernandez discusses her experiences and her hopes for the future with professors Andrew Clapham and Neus Torbisco Casals. Good afternoon, Silvia, and thank you for being here with us. Let me start with some questions related to your background. You started your career at the National Foreign Service Institute in Argentina, where diplomatic officials are recruited and trained. You then served at the legal department of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and eventually became legal advisor at the permanent mission of your country to the UN in New York. This position, which you occupied from 1994 to 2000, was a very competitive post, I imagine. Can you describe the experience of being a young woman diplomat in the 1980s and 90s? Also, we are curious about what sparked your interest in diplomacy at the time where there were no many women diplomats that you could look at as role models, so to say. I think what sparked my interest in diplomacy was international law. I liked international law. But then I realized that I couldn't really do international law in Argentina unless I became a diplomat. Of course, you can do international law as an academic, but I wasn't really interested in academia. I realized that was far too profound for me. I, I wanted to be a practitioner. I wanted to be the one that is negotiating treaties and being in multilateral fora. So um, actually, I, w I didn't want to be a diplomat. I wanted to do that. But uh, in Argentina, you don't do that from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs unless you really are a diplomat. And then you go to the legal advisory section or the treaty section. So then I decided, okay, I will become a diplomat. And I passed the competition to, to enter because in order to become a diplomat in Argentina, you need to have this, there is a competition, there is a, is a recruitment by a, in a competitive process, and you have to spend two years in the diplomatic academy. And that was my first shock as a woman, because it was very clearly said to me that they didn't want more than 10% women in the, uh, in the career. And, and there were only 12 vacancies. So it was basically, there was room for one woman and 20% of another one. So that was for me a shock. 
because in order to ensure that they got only 10%, they really had to manipulate the, uh, the competition. Some of the exams were, were written, others were uh, oral exams, but they made sure that women never got into the top ranks because if not, you may end up with a terrible situation where you have more than 10%. So that was for me a huge shock. And uh, actually it went well because we, they had the edit with more than 10% because it was difficult to get one plus 20% of another one. And uh, so we got two women in the 12. So there was two women, 10 men. And part of the exams today were, would be completely unacceptable because some of the questions would be per very personal, such as what would you do after you get married? What if you have children? Where you, are you going to be able to do to go to dangerous places? And uh, so these type of questions today would not be allowed. And, uh, but at the time were part of the, of the system. So I passed that. I wasn't happy, but I passed. And uh, we were only two in the classroom and uh, it was big fun, I have to say, once you, you got in and we, the two women, we became very good friends. Indeed, it was considered to be a very masculine career and women were not welcome. I have to say it has changed a lot in that regard. Today, you really have uh, parity in these competitions and you have a lot of women going in, but still the problem of uh, having access to the higher ranks. Be, uh, to be an ambassador or to be in the best positions as head of mission. This is still uh, very much, very much a masculine thing. And we still have very low percentages of women in the high ranks of the career and occupying the best positions in, uh, in embassies. Thank you. Let's talk a bit about your role in the court. You had such a remarkable uh, trajectory there, having worked in the ad hoc committee and then the PrepCom and then in Rome, of course, as the vice president of the committee of the whole. And so you must have felt in some way as parent and founder of the court. What was it like to, to actually walk through the doors as a judge and eventually become the president? And if not, necessarily in a position to get more women on the bench, but to change, obviously, the culture and the institution from the inside. Are there any insights you could give us about your role as president there and, and thinking about the gender dimension of how a court works? Of course, it is in still be, uh, based on these uh, patriarchal beliefs. It's not that women are not apt, but that they, uh, they give you a role and they take for granted that, for instance, husbands will not follow if the woman is uh, needs to go because, of course, men need to work. It's not the same as a, a male ambassador. Everybody takes for granted that the woman, even if she's professional, she will simply abandon her profession to follow him. So indeed, it is based very much on that. And then you mentioned something that it is related to my second career because I've been very luck in my life because I have two careers, a career as a diplomat and then having been involved in the judiciary as, a, as an international judge. And it is very much about a representation in the judiciary because there, again, we see a huge problem and we see very low numbers in international tribunals, but also in the national systems, in particular in the highest tribunals. If you see, for instance, the Supreme Court of Argentina, at this very moment, there is no woman. 
the only woman that there was there, she resigned and she has not been replaced. And this is not, not just Argentina, it's in many countries you have the same situation. In international tribunals, the numbers still are very low and the same for the tribunal of the law of the sea and for most of the tribunals, except the ICC, that of course, throughout its history, is changing. But in general, I would say that the participation of women in the bench has been quite satisfactory and far better than in other international tribunals. But that's why I participated in the GQL campaign, because I believe really that, that the gender diversity in the judiciary is absolutely essential for the legitimacy of the process, the legitimacy of the courts, legitimacy of decisions. Again, there is this gender bias because everybody talks about the founding fathers, but no one talks about the founding mothers. So I did feel <laughs> I was a bit of a parent, but uh, no one would say you are a founding mother because it is something that you don't say. So for me, it was, uh, it was fabulous and a fabulous experience, something that I never expected when I was uh, in the negotiating process. First of all, I never expected that the court would be operational so early. Uh, sometimes I doubted it would be operation in my lifetime. So to do not only to have an operational court, but being a judge at the court was for me extraordinary. And I was, it was very emotional when, when I was elected because it was really something uh, huge for me. And, I, and the fact that I knew so much about the system and I've been, I've been involved so much in the design of the legal framework, or in particular, the procedural legal framework. And having been there also before as a staff member of the office of the prosecutor, yeah, going to the court as a judge was a little bit like going home. Then my experience there started and I, re I realized that it was home, but not a really cozy one. It, it, it is a difficult place. It was difficult at the time because it was still very pioneer. Everything was yet to be done or to and worse because a few years later many things needed to be undone in order to improve the functioning so i arrived as a woman and being a woman when i arrived i don't think i i felt particularly uh, welcomed or rejected just because i was a woman because indeed the participation of women in the icc is already embedded in the legal framework so there are there is a, this expectation that there will be women there that women will be represented there being elected and being part of the bench as a woman was not in itself particularly innovative or something that created a great impression it was a little bit different later on when i i became president because that was historic, because even for a court that had big representation or quite important representation of women, it was the first time ever to have a female president and a female presidency. There is uh, a little bit of a campaign before because you present your interest, the vice presidents present or those who want to be vice president, they say we want to be vice president. And actually, we even had a process where you have to explain why, what you intend to do. So I wrote a document on this, what were my goals. And then we discovered with horror that all candidates for the president and vice presidents were women. 
And then I was told, well, there's no way you're going to be elected as president because they, they, you cannot be an entire female presidency. Of course, there were many uh, male judges that wanted to be president, but no one has said vice president. So if I was elected, I was going to end up in a totally female presidency. And even for women and some of the staff members that were my friends, they said, that doesn't work. You will not be elected like that. So that was again a shock because I said, why not? You had three men before and, and all these presidencies were entirely male and the prosecutor was, was responded masculine, the registrar. So why not having a woman, even if she comes with two vice presidents that are also female? So that was an issue and that it got my attention that we were, that the issue was not solved at the court either. And maybe they were used to having female representation, but having an entire female leadership was a different matter altogether. But still, the three women got elected. So we became the first entirely female presidency in the history of the ICC. And, and of course, that created quite an impact. And then some of my colleagues and even some of diplomats, they say to me, well, now you have to select the chef de cabinet. And of course, it needs to be a man because you are an entirely female presidency. <laughs> and I'm sorry, we recruited in a very honest and open competition a female chef de cabinet, who is now a judge, Kimberly Pross, was my chef de cabinet. Well, I was president uh, from 2015 to 2018. One of the big problems that we had was that in 2017, before I was, uh, the, the one year before the end of my presidency, we, we needed to start preparing for the election of the next six judges. Every three years, we renew one third of the bench. And we discovered with horror that there were six women in the bench at the time and five were uh, supposed to leave because of the end of their mandate. So we would end up with one woman. So it was absolutely essential to promote the nomination of uh, female judges. So we needed to be very proactive from the presidency and uh, I got involved in this personally. And actually, we organized a moot debate on whether we should establish a system of quotas for the election. And uh, it was a very nice debate. One side was uh, supposed to, to defend arguments in favor of quotas, the others against quotas. They were people from the academia. And uh, actually, the current prosecutor was part of this uh, moot debate. I think he was uh, defending the side of against quotas. <laughs> and there was uh, there were three judges who were going to decide who won. I was the president of the uh, of the judges of the three of the panel of three judges, so I had to decide who had won the argument. And uh, you can imagine who won, in my view. And indeed, we took uh, some uh, other initiatives and bilaterally, we would putting uh, this on the table all the time. And uh, indeed, we had enough nominations to, to ensure the, the five judges would be replaced by five women, at least. Five judges were elected, and that was at least a partial success, but also showed that unless you are very proactive, you go back into the old ages and the, it would be the nominations would not necessarily favor women unless there is a political incentive to do so. 
because also you have the problem at the national level that most of those who could be nominated are also men. So is, there is an issue also in terms of uh, where is, what is your universe from whom to choose the nominations. But of course, we took other measures in substance also to, to try to draw the attention of their colleagues on issues of, of, of gender in the, in, in the investigations and prosecutions. We had a number of initiatives to the, in this regard, bringing people to the court to discuss issues of, of, of gender-based crimes. And actually, at the end of our mandate, we proposed the establishment of a focal point for gender. And at the court, which ex exists in other tribunals now, but in the court it didn't. And uh, actually it, it did happen, but most recently this happened only last year. So we now we have a gender focal point at the, at the court. That is a fascinating answer. Thank you. I would like to highlight to our listeners that we introduced you as the founding mother of the ICC in the public lecture you gave at the Graduate Institute. Once again, because of your experience, you are in a great position to answer the following question. How can the design of institutional provisions and substantive and procedural rules contribute to tribunals with a gender perspective? Do you think institutional reforms need to wait for cultural transformations? And how do these two dimensions relate to one another? This is very interesting what you say. Actually, when we had this moot court, moot debate on quotas, yes or no, those who were opposed to them said, no, this is not good because you need to wait for the evolution, for the change of culture. And I think even if you have the patience of waiting for 3,000 years, I don't think the change of culture will occur unless you take some initiatives to promote the change. Uh, or maybe, of course, I'm exaggerating, maybe it would change, but it would take so very long that uh, it would simply perpetuate injustice and uh, it would perpetuate the statu quo for too long. And, uh, and as I said before, a, a global court, just to mention the ICC, it needs to have this diversity for its legitimacy in, the, in decision-making, in the actual decisions, so you cannot just wait for the change of culture. You have to promote it. And in order to promote the change in the courts, or you mentioned academia, and I think it applies to any field, you need to improve the, the, the architecture of the system in many ways. I think the ICC is a good example because you already have a better design in the Rome Statute. And of course, this is complemented by the rules of procedure. You have a better design there where you have a, a number of provisions in the, in the substantive criminal law, but also in the institutional framework in order to ensure that you have diversity, that you have enough gender representation, geographic representation. And actually, it, it has proved to be extremely important because the results have been quite good compared to other tribunals that do not have the same design. For instance, but the numbers of participation of judges in the bench. Just one example. But also, if you want to change also the, the culture inside the system, you do need to change the methods, the uh, way of thinking, because sometimes it's very subtle also this, the, how this masculine culture reflects in the institution, in the way that discussions are held, who is heard and who is not heard. 
So a focal point for gender is intended to promote initiatives inside in order to help in the working environment, in the culture of the system. So it is a small initiative. I'm not saying that the focal point for gender will solve everything, but you need a number of initiatives to promote this chain of culture. And of course, once we have the, the new culture, we will not need to do all this. But right now, we need to expedite the change. And you do it in many ways. In also training is helpful because even if you have enough women, for instance, if you have parity, that doesn't mean that they do all have, just because they are women, that they have the right expertise, for instance, or their right sensitivity or, or sufficient gender sensitivity to, to address the situations and the problems. So training is also extremely useful. And uh, there are a number of initiatives at the court also to ensure sufficient expertise. And again, that goes in the direction you say. You need a right design. A design of the institution needs to be already done in with this per perspective. And also, once you have it, you need to make it operational through other measures. Actually, it is quite fascinating to be now the uh, godmother or the grandmother at my age. I guess I was the mother and now I am naturally a grandmother. <laughs> but it is a good it is a good moment to be the grandmother or the godmother or whatever. Because we are now dealing with an overhaul of the system or a revision, the review of the entire system. Because we are going into the 20th anniversary of the start of operations, and in 2023, it would be the 25th anniversary of the adoption of the Romstad. The Assembly of State Parties, before I was elected, established a group of international experts mandated to uh, make recommendations on how to enhance the system, how to strengthen the system from all points of view. Of course, improving the proceedings, but also the, addressing the governance of the court, addressing its working culture, its environment, but also addressing the cooperation and political support that is given by states. This is actually a, was uh, the initiative started with a letter of four former presidents of the assembly who said it's time for a new deal because also the court has gone through a very problematic times because of the perception that it was ineffective, that it was too slow, that it was too focused on one area of the world. So that also created some frustrations. So indeed, we are now looking into the entire system. The uh, experts came with some almost uh, 300 something recommendations, almost 400 recommendations in all areas. And these are being tackled by the assembly with the court and with civil society in a very transparent and inclusive dialogue. So this is a good moment to, to be there. Some of the recommendations actually have already been implemented by the court itself, even before they were recommended because they were already in the making. Others need to have a more in-depth discussion. And so this is exactly what the Assembly is doing now, together with the court and civil society, trying to, to see whether through this review process, we will revitalize the system. Not necessarily change it uh, dramatically, but also it's an opportunity to reflect on what can be done better by the court, but also by states. And of course, among the aspects that are being looked at by states are also the process of selection of the judges and other elected officials. 
So all this is being done at this very moment. We have already improved the system of election by establishing what we call a due diligence process to uh, verify the high moral character of the candidates. Small things that are being done and some not so small in order to improve as much as possible the, the architecture of the system and uh, the support that the system can receive from the international community. Last November, we organized a workshop at the Graduate Institute on the meaning of representation in international law and how this applies to different international courts and tribunals. Professor Makao Mutua, who is a key voice in the third world approaches to international law movement, was one of our keynote speakers. In his speech, he highlighted the fact that the ICC is located in The Hague rather than in Africa. He underscored that people seek justice through the lenses of their histories and cultures and that a systematic exclusion of different peoples in the international judiciary might contribute to eroding the institution's legitimacy. Beyond gender, how do you think we can incorporate into the ICC a vision of, a vision of international justice that is not solely shaped by Western ideas? Before I became a grandmother or a judge, <laughs> I was very much involved in the drafting of the legal system of the court and, and in the negotiations of the Rome Statute. And we were, there was a huge deliberate effort to make sure that all legal systems and all traditions, visions and values would be there, would, that everybody would be, uh, have access to the discussions, but also that the system of the court would represent all and, and would not attach to one system in particular. In terms of the legal systems, there was this huge effort, and actually it was accomplished, to have a hybrid system that uh, combines the different systems of the world. All representatives of all regions and all were part of this, were part of the discussion, and provided their inputs. And that, of course, includes representatives from Latin America, representatives from Africa, and of course, also Asia and Europe. So all the traditions and systems were expressed, and the system, indeed, of the court is a hybrid system. It's a hybrid system that combines the main systems of the world, which are basically the common law and the civil law systems. And that is not just Europe, around the world. These systems are the two predominant systems. And of course, there are other traditions that were also discussed because the hybrid is not really simply putting a, these two systems together and combining them, but really create, having a new creation. So in the inception of the design, everybody was represented. So I think it is now not really accurate to say that the court and the legal framework of the court represents the values and systems of one continent, because it is simply not true. It is not true in the architecture. It's not true in the huge effort that was done to have a, a geographic representation in the institution. I think the fact that the court sits at The Hague is not, uh, a, is not a symbol of being a European court. And it sits at The Hague because The Hague was offered a seat for court and I don't think there was a huge competition for seats for the court. 
And I don't think Africa or Latin America offered a place that was uh, in competition with the Hague. So I, I really uh, see this criticism as accurate. I think it's not based on fact. It may be based on perceptions, which are more difficult to dispel than facts, but it's not really based on what is the actual legal framework and the actual functioning of the court. Thank you. I mean, we're coming to the end now, and you've been fantastic, Sylvia. It's brilliant insights for us. And I know there are sort of students who are going to be listening to this. And I wonder if you had, I suppose the right expression is sort of words of wisdom as to you know, what they can expect from their career and, and the right sort of paths to take seen from the giddy heights of the presidency of the Assembly of States parties, having been in the prosecutor's office and having been the president of the court. And I know there'll be lots of students who'd like to emulate you and fulfill, you know, some of those roles. Uh, have you got any thoughts that you'd like to share with them? Well, I, I would say that for those who like, uh, in, uh, were interested in international uh, criminal law or international law in general, I think what my experience at the court has been extraordinary. In the, and I highly recommend those who uh, are interested in the project, who believe that accountability for the atrocious crimes is uh, indeed essential for prevention and essential for justice, I would highly recommend to try to apply to be inside the court. They can be there as interns. And actually, there is a lot of a very interesting work for interns. They, really they are really involved in the, in the kitchen of decisions. So it is extremely interesting for, for any student. They are all areas that are extremely interesting to get to know and even to enhance your, your knowledge of law and knowledge of the system. And of course, for the young uh, professionals, there's also a, 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 a program for visiting professionals. So you can go there as a student, as an intern, but also as a young professional. There are a lot of important things happening. Lots is at stake. So it is difficult. It is sometimes that there is a lot of adrenaline there. But that is also what makes it so fascinating. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure to listen to you. Thank you. Thank you very much for this opportunity. Thank you for listening to this episode of Women in International Justice. Don't forget to subscribe and stay tuned for more conversations with women who are reshaping the international judiciary system. If you'd like to hear more about women on the international bench, go to graduateinstitute.ch forward slash diversity intl bench or follow the link in the show notes below and follow the lecture series organized by the albert hirschman center on democracy